We'll begin this morning in Matthew chapter 26 in verse 31. And it is my intent, God willing, to go on through verse 56. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, who heard the prayers of your Son on this night unlike any other, we come reverently to ask this morning that in your kindness and mercy and compassion, you would help us to not sin against you or your Son, but rather that you would grant by your Spirit that we hear what your Spirit has written. And as you guide us and have us look at your suffering Son in those moments in Gethsemane, that you would help us to know him more, to know him truly, and to know him not only for our salvation, but for his adoration and praise we ask. Amen. Each of the Gospels record 
this occasion when Jesus not only met with his disciples, served them in the upper room, but then as they transitioned from there to a short ways outside of the city walls to the Mount of Olives, and there in particular a small garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. We know from other accounts that Jesus would not infrequently go here as a place of respite, of place of quiet away from the crowds where he might pray and seek the face of his Father in heaven. But just before they transition or perhaps on the way, Jesus continues to tell his disciples what is about to transpire. He has been up front all along for for a long while now. He's been telling them that they're going to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man, that's that messianic title for himself that he owned, will be betrayed, will be handed over to the chief priests and the rulers. He will suffer at their hands and even be crucified. And he has told them that he will rise on the third day. This is something they have not been able to comprehend. It's not that it's unintelligible. It's that it just does not fit with their understanding of Scripture. It doesn't fit with their expectation and with the desires of their heart for the overthrow of the Roman Empire and for the reign of the Messiah in victory right there, right then, and for them to sit at his right and to his left. They are terribly confused. And yet Jesus, in love, he continues to love his disciples. He continues to love his own. And we sang earlier, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He loved us. And just before we enter into some of the details of the text, I want to just step back for a moment. I want you to observe that the Spirit of God, who is the ultimate author of Scripture and of the Gospels, is having us slow down. And he is having us look carefully at the character and at the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard a lot in the Gospels about his teaching and about his healing. But do you notice how each of the Gospels, they pass rather quickly, especially over the first 30 years of his life or so. They touch on his ministry, but each of the Gospels slows down to a halting pace when it comes to the sufferings of his last days and of his last hours. We are meant to look at our Savior in his suffering and in his belaboring, laboring rather, on our behalf. These are such holy, precious moments. There are godly, brilliant men who have written on these verses and have meditated on them. I commend them to you, men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon in Life and Times of the Messiah, um, the, or the work of our Lord, rather. Alfred Edersheim, another 
wrote on the life and times of our Messiah. There, there are, I encourage you, if, if you would like in the next few weeks some material to meditate on these verses and on the sufferings of the Lord, uh, see me after and I'll, I'll, commend, I'll give you the references to those works. In other words, we are meant to ponder these things. We are meant to reflect. We are meant to think and consider. And I also want to encourage you that we are meant to keep our mind fixed on Jesus. There are lessons on prayer in these verses. No doubt about it. There's teaching here about prayer. But too often in my life, I've heard passages like this emphasizing the teaching, rather, on passages like this, emphasize lessons on prayer and so forth. And that is well and good, but that is not the priority and the burden of the Holy Spirit. He wants you and he wants me to love your Savior, Jesus Christ. There will be time for reflecting on how we ought to pray and so forth, but let us just for a few moments look at him. And we're going to continue to do that in the weeks ahead. And and the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, it's like he's just pounding, pounding, pounding glorious truths about the character and the majesty and the glory and the love and the grace and the compassion and the strength and the courage of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that these truths about him are so pounded so deeply into your soul. That you will love him. And when it comes time to suffering and to trial, like these disciples would face, you will stand for him. And it will not be in the moment because of some will of yours, because you have some strength within. No, it will be because the Holy Spirit, so by his word, implanted the truth of the glory and majesty of your Savior, you can't deny him. Because of what the Spirit has done by taking the truth about Christ and what he did for you, who he is, and impressed it so deeply upon your heart that you are forever changed. This is our prayer as we approach the text. So I am going to attempt in these next moments with you to observe, make observations about our glorious Savior by no means even coming close to exhausting what we learn here in the text. But first of all, this morning, as we examine our solitary suffering Savior, I want you to notice, first of all, that he knew he would be abandoned, and yet he still went forward. He knew he would be abandoned, and yet he still went forward. We don't know exactly where Jesus said these words in verses 31, 35, 35, this exchange with his disciples. They had, maybe they were on their way to the Mount of Olives, they're walking. Perhaps it's somewhere along the way. And Jesus said to his disciples in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. Wow. Wow. He's told them that one of them will betray him. And now he tells them not only will one of them betray him, but they will all fall away. This is heartrending. 
These men who are with him, Judas is not with him at this moment, right? Judas has left. Judas has gone to gather the soldiers and the mob that will come and arrest Jesus. Jesus is now alone with the eleven. And these eleven men truly love Jesus. There is no doubt of that. The scriptures does not call into question their sincerity. They are not like Judas. They are not those who profess to love him but don't. They earnestly, sincerely, however imperfectly, love Jesus Christ. They believe his claims to be the Messiah. They have witnessed his power and his character up close. They have no doubt that he is the promised one, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the descendant of David, the heir to the throne, the conqueror that has been long promised. And yet they will, according to Jesus, fall away. They'll abandon him. And this is because they, along with others in their generation, had neglected or missed altogether the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the sufferings of the Messiah. They had just kind of passed over those passages. You know, for them, the for, for our, our modern day, and I've reflected on this a lot, there's a lot of evangelicals today when the Bible has to say anything about the future or about end times, evangelicals today kind of just say, well, shrug their shoulders and say, well, who can really know? <laughs> and, and I've suggested to you more than once, that's a neglect of holy, inerrant scripture. So we don't want to just shrug our shoulders. They shrug their shoulders or just scratch their heads at the references in the Old Testament to the sufferings of the Messiah. The Old Testament does, prophecies do speak more frequently of the triumphs of the Messiah, of the hope of the Messiah, of the victories of the Messiah, but the Old Testament prophecies do speak of his sufferings. Most notable, and we'll look at this later, is Isaiah 53. It's not just a passing few verses. It's a, it's a major portion of Scripture at the center of the, one of the greatest prophecies in all of Scripture. The sufferings of the Messiah. But they hadn't taken it in. It just didn't fit with their grid, with their preconceived ideas of how this ought to go down. And they had neglected other texts. For example, like Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. And I just want you to notice, again, that in our day and age, we have a tendency to kind of dismiss uh, prophecies like Zechariah or chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, and, and say, well, who can really know? But I want you to notice, again, we're learning our Lord's view of Scripture. Jesus, the man, had meditated on Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. It meant something to him. He took it at face value. He believed that the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God had given to the prophet Zechariah 
revelation as to what would occur. And there, Jesus quotes it in Matthew 26, but more fully, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Huh. I don't think anyone could claim to understand fully what's going on there. What, how does that work? Where, where does this fit in? We have questions, yes. But it is clear that God is going to call for violence to awake and to come upon this mysterious messianic figure, the servant, whom God calls his associate. Fascinating. Another indication of the divinity of the Messiah. But it's not unclear as to what's going to happen. You have questions, but it's clear that God is going to have the sword, that is violence, awake and come upon the Messiah, the shepherd, the chief shepherd. The disciples... Apparently had neglected that. Jesus hadn't. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he knew, and this is going to be controversial to some of you, but he knew not because of his divine omniscience, he knew because of the Holy Spirit directing him to what had already been revealed in the Holy Scriptures. You say, you're denying the omniscience of Christ? I am not. He is the Son of Man and He is the Son of God. But one of the things we've been learning in our Sunday school class, and we've learned repeatedly, is the mystery of the incarnation of Christ is such that He is true God, true man, and that the two natures are not mixed. And so what we are observing here is our Lord the incarnate Son of God in the flesh, a true sinless man who is life, in his life, had meditated upon the Scriptures, filled by the Holy Spirit with a perfect human mind. And he knew and received his information as to what was going to happen to him from the Scriptures and from the Holy Spirit. He was completely submitted to the word and the revelation of God and the spirit of God. And in the word, it was written. Notice he says, verse 31, for it is written. That takes submission to the authority and the clarity, the perspicuity of scripture to a whole new level. And it ought to, as it is a side point this morning, but again, our view of Scripture through our study of our Lord's sufferings should just keep going up and up and up because what we're learning is how he viewed Scripture. If the Scriptures said, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, then he understood that he would be struck down and the sheep would be scattered. Why? Because it is is written. If it's written according to the word of God, it is going to happen. And so he told his disciples this. He knew he would be abandoned. He knew by way of the scriptures, he knew what would happen. 
and he still went forward. He knew the nature of that abandonment. They would stumble and fall, he says. You will all stumble and fall because of me. Verse 31, because of me. It won't be because of the sheer brute of sheer brute force or threat. But they will fall away and they will stumble because of conscious internal confusion and disillusionment about Jesus. They love him, but they do not yet know him fully. In part because they do not fully know themselves. They're sincere. They believe he's the Messiah, but they don't yet understand themselves. Peter is illustration of this. He's not bluffing. He says to the Lord, Jesus, verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He means it as an expression of loyalty to Christ. But what Peter is revealing, and the other disciples are right there with him. You see down in verse 35, all the disciples said the same thing too. So Peter's the mouth. Peace. He's the spokesperson, but it's not like he's alone in his feelings. The other men love Jesus. They, in their zeal, are convinced they would never leave him. Their loyalty is of the utmost. And yet they don't understand their own hearts. Not yet. They don't understand their true nature. And they don't understand that the greatest enemy to be conquered, needing to be conquered, is not the foreign occupiers, the Romans, but a very native enemy in their own hearts, their own sin nature. They have yet to understand that. They think that the greatest enemy is external. Jesus understands their greatest enemy is internal. He came to save his people from their sins. They don't yet understand how sinful they really are. Some of us might not either. Some of us here this morning might think that the greatest problems in the world are happening elsewhere. Great political schemes or maybe in Washington, D.C. And no doubt it is messed up there in Washington, D.C., Some of us think that the greatest problems are in the culture and the society, and no doubt the society and culture is messed up, and there are great problems there. But if you understand the scriptures correctly, you understand that your greatest enemy is not without but within, in the nature of your own heart and frailty and sin. Jesus knows them. And yet, look at this. He knows they will abandon him. He knows their nature. He knows that in spite of their protests of loyalty, he knows they will betray him because he knows their hearts. Notice he says in verse 32, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. It's incredible. I've got to tell you guys, in love, what's going to go down? You're all going to 
stumble because of me. You're all going to leave me. You're all going to abandon me. But when I rise from again from the dead, I'm going to go ahead to you. The inference is there. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Meaning, I know you're going to betray me. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to rise for you. And I'm going to still want to be with you. Think about that. He knows they're going to betray him. He knows Peter, specifically, is going to deny him three times. And still he says, after I rise, I will go ahead and I will meet you in Galilee. That's grace. That's love. That's compassion. And doesn't that encourage you, sinner, this morning? It encourages me. That is so encouraging. That my Lord and my Savior knows how weak I am, how faithless I can be, how fickle I can be. He knew all your faults. He knew all your failures. He knew how you would let him down, and yet he still goes forward in love. Jesus knew he would be abandoned, and yet he still went forward to save his people. Secondly, this morning, I want you to notice as they transition to the garden, Jesus knew the suffering he would face. He knew the sufferings he would face, yet he submitted to them to please his Father and save his people. I know it's a long sentence. He knew the sufferings he would face. He knew them, yet he submitted to them. The emphasis of this whole passage is on the submission of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to the will of the Father. Jesus, verse 36, came with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Here is another indication of his true humanity. He was like any man, weak. He could not do this apart from the grace of his father. Pertaining to his divinity, this is no, you know, he doesn't have to struggle. We are witnessing a true man in these moments suffer unspeakably. And verse 37, we learn that he took with him over to that place Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. These were the men who, with whom he was closest. He, he loved all his men, but just like all of us in life, it's just the way that God designed. There are, there are those that we end up being closest to, and these three are the closest to him. They are his confidants. They are his friends. It's another testimony to his humanity. He enjoyed their company. He was glad to have them around. He wanted them to be around with them. Aren't you glad in the darkest moments of your life 
Perhaps when you're grieving or when you're sorrowing, there are times when you want to be alone, yes, but you don't want to forever be alone. You want someone to visit you. You maybe want someone just to sit with you. You want those that love you and trust you just to somehow be there with you and to, to you're comforted even if in an imperfect small way, you're comforted by their very physical presence. This is our Lord. And he said to them, verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. What that must have been. Jesus is a man, but he's perfect man. He, he is without sin. He is, he is without sin nature. He has the fullest capacity of humanity as God created humanity. His mind knows a perfection that ours does not in humanity but his soul knew a perfection a soul without sin a soul without selfishness a soul that abhorred and hated sin we who are believers in Jesus Christ as we are born again in the Holy Spirit we learn to hate sin and even the most mature of us are a little more, too more comfortable, too comfortable with sin, more comfortable than we ought to be. It's due to familiarity. We know sin well. We know it all too well. It's not an abhorrence to us. Our, our souls learn to grieve over sin, but it is a learned grief because we are born with a sin nature. We're born in it and we practice it. And we're around it. Jesus never knew sin. And yet his soul was deeply grieved. Why? At the thought of mere physical suffering? I don't think so. We dare not say so. His soul was grieved because of the reality. He knew he was going to be made sin on behalf of his people. And there is a teaching in this passage, there is a belittling in our day, even in professing evangelical churches, of the reality of sin and the wrath of God due sin. And so that Jesus' death on the cross and his sufferings become mere exemplary. He, he did this out of an example for us, out of kind of love. And, but, but God doesn't really hate sin to the degree that it fires the fires of hell. There's a diminishing of the nature of sin as an offense against God. Well, if that's the case, if sin isn't really that bad, if it's just kind of a psychological malady, then how do we explain a grieving Savior in Gethsemane? It makes no sense. There are other men who have faced a horrible suffering death with courage, and their soul wasn't grieved to the extent that his. He was grieved in the face of what he would need to do. He who knew no sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, would be made sin for us. And it was an an abhorrence to his holy, sinless soul. Not only was he abhorred by the thought of becoming sin. Even though he knew it was necessary, it was the only way by which he could atone for the sins of his people was to bear them in himself and take them away. 
But he was also grieved and distressed because this was the hour of his greatest temptation. The Garden of Gethsemane had in the past been a place of respite, of quiet, of being away where he could seek the face of his father. But in this hour, on this night, this Garden of Gethsemane was a battlefield. The quiet of the night and the serenity of the physical space was in complete contrast to the spiritual realities going on. This was the moment of Satan's greatest attack. We lose sight of Satan, and that's okay because we're not meant to fixate on him in the text, but you notice how much he has been around You remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was baptized and then he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness and there he was tempted by the devil. And he went toe-to-toe with our enemy and resisted temptation, but Satan had not given up. We have learned in John 13, 27, that at the table, at the supper, Satan entered into Judas Satan was guiding Judas as he went to the scribes and to the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders to betray Christ. Satan was in Judas as he was working that night to gather a mob to arrest Jesus. Jesus has, in this, as they come to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's urged his disciples, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 40, He said to his disciples, pray that you do not enter into temptation. His disciples were being tempted. Satan was tempting Christ. Just as he had tempted Adam in the garden. It's really amazing if you think about it. Two men, Adam and Jesus. Two gardens. One tempter. Same basic pitch. God is lying to you. He's revealed his will, what he wants you to do. Are you really going to obey him and trust him that he'll be true? Adam was tempted in a perfect garden. Adam was tempted under perfect conditions. And if Adam passed the temptation, all he had was the promise of life. Right? Jesus, if he passes the temptation and resists the lies of the enemy to doubt his father's will, Jesus, for passing the temptation, receives suffering, death, And the wrath of God on the cross. Incredible. He knew the suffering he would face. He goes into it eyes wide open. He's under attack from the enemy. He has the will of God, his father, revealed to him in the scriptures. What is written? He knows it is good. He knows it is pure. He knows that his father has promised that if he, Jesus, bears the sins of his people, that because of 
his offering, the Father will raise him. He knows, Jesus knows he will be raised. He's said to his disciples numerous times, and on the third day, he will be raised. But all he has is the word of his Father. That's all he has. Is he going to trust him? Is he going to submit? And we see the wrestling of Jesus when not once, not twice, but three times, verse 39, he prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is the cup? The cup is the cup of sufferings, of of the wrath of God against sinners for whom Christ would die. It's the cup of justice do our sin. It's the cup of propitiation, the cup of sacrifice, the cup of judgment, if possible. How do we understand that? It's really not complicated. It's right for Jesus to, in his holy humanity, to be adverse to going forward to experiencing the wrath of God. He loves the Father. He's known nothing but communion with the Father. He hates and loathes sin. But he's about to be made sin, and he's about to know the wrath of God, the displeasure of his Father. There's a holy aversion to this experience and it is not because of cowardice and it is not because of selfishness and it is not because of anything wanting or lacking in our Lord it is good and it is right and it is reasonable that he did not in a sense want to experience the horrors that he was about to endure Maybe this morning some of us are learning or being reminded in a whole new way of what Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, that Jesus was one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Don't ever think, oh, because Jesus was the Son of God, yeah, temptation wasn't very hard for him. It's not true. It's true he was without sin. It's true that Satan had nothing in him. But don't ever think for a moment that your Savior somehow just coasted through this temptation. And so again, what a wonderful, wonderful teaching and encouragement that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he too is tempted. A true man, Jesus fought to resist the lies of the devil and to trust his heavenly Father and to submit to his will. Not my will, Father, verse 39, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. There's another indication of his true humanity, for he has a human will. He has a divine will. He has a human will. Pertaining to his divine will, that wouldn't have to submit to the Father's will because it's one will with the Father. But he's a true man. He has a true human nature, true human will. And he must, in the flesh, 
fight the battle, and he must succeed and triumph where Adam failed, and he must submit to God his Father. Turn with me for a moment to Isaiah 53. This is not the only passage that speaks of the sufferings of the Messiah. The whole sacrificial system, the whole teaching of the Passover lamb, and they had just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Jesus understood that the lamb and the blood shed spoke of what the Messiah would do. But if there was any vagueness to that concept, that vagueness was given detail and concrete description through the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Don't you think Jesus loved the prophecy of Isaiah? He loved the Old Testament scriptures, but the prophecies about the Messiah and what he will do come to a high point, really, in this section of of Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 53, Jesus knew that the Lord, Yahweh, God, was pleased to crush the servant, the Messiah, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 11, as the result of the anguish of his, the Messiah's soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, says God, he will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I mean, I I could read the whole chapter. You know it well, I trust. Jesus understood the will of his Father. He knew what he had to do. And he prayed, if at all possible, that cup would pass from him. But he prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. And all was it a struggle. Our Lord wrestling in prayer to the point that his human body began to break down. That, that wards off any idea that just because he's the Son of God, you know, he could handle it. His, as he, this temptation was so real, the fight in his true humanity to move forward, to step into the horrors of hell that he was about to experience were so overwhelming to him with his perfect mind, knowing full well what he was going to experience, his perfect humanity, his perfect sinless soul going to receive this. It was so abhorrent to him that his flesh began to break down so that we're told in the Gospel of Luke that drops like of blood, like sweat, began to fall from his pores. His body actually beginning to break down because of the stress and the grief. The discomfort, the pain, the suffering that he began to endure in these moments are unparalleled. And yet he went forward. 
Incredible. He persevered and he triumphed for love to his father and love to us, his people. Throughout this time, those he hoped to bear some comfort from, these were the men that were closest to him. And he goes back and he finds them sleeping. And, and we're tempted to be hard on the disciples. Those, those bozos, you know, how come they couldn't just be with our Lord in the hour of his greatest pain? I mean, come on. I would have been right with them. Have you ever experienced grief? I mean true grief. And if you have, you understand that one of the effects of true grief is you are exhausted with an exhaustion that you really can't describe. You can hardly stay awake. You are so grieving. Crying, tears, yes. But grief brings a weariness. These men are grieving. Their Lord has told them that one of them is going to betray him, and now he's just told them they're all going to fall away. There is a distancing happening between them, and they do not understand. They are confused. Jesus is going off on a direction. They have no idea what is going on. They are in grief. They are exhausted. There's nothing trite or silly You can't tell jokes about anything in this episode. These poor men, weak, sinful men like me, should be praying, as the Lord said. But I ask us this morning, have any of us started to pray about something very important and found our minds starting to wander and starting to sleep? As an aside, that's why prayer is the hardest spiritual work we do. I say that as one who is a neophyte. I, I, prayer is the hardest work we do. Reading your Bible, piece of cake compared to prayer. That's a sermon for another day. doesn't mean that you can't. doesn't mean that there's excuses. But it means that there is a work in prayer that our Lord was modeling here. And the disciples were just grieving. They were tired and they just weren't up for it. And so they fell asleep. And they couldn't keep watch with Jesus, verse 40, for even one hour. Jesus goes away, comes back, goes away, comes back, goes away, comes back. The third time and he found them sleeping, verse 45. Are you still sleeping? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Thirdly and finally this morning and very, very briefly. He not only knew that he would be abandoned. He not only knew that he would suffer, but he knew he would be betrayed. We've learned this repeatedly. But here, think about it. He's gone through this time, these hours of duress. He's covered with blood from the effects of of this trial upon his very humanity, his frame. He comes back and he sees his 
his, the men who should be supporting him in his hour of greatest need, and they still are sleeping. And instead of giving in and giving up, our Lord and Savior knows he's about to be betrayed and worship him for this. Worship your king for this. Let your eyes of your heart be lifted up and see the majesty and the glory of him, our king and our conqueror. He knows about what he's about to endure. He knows in the next minute he is about to be betrayed. His men are about to leave him. And there's no equivocating. There's no pause. There's no hesitation. He says, verse 46, get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He knows he will betray, be betrayed, and he rises to meet his betrayer. In all the regal dignity of his person, his face, as the scriptures say, set like flint. Once he passed through that trial in the garden once he labored in prayer to the point of blood drops. He passed the temptation and he was determined and he was set to conquer our enemy and to take our sins upon himself and to trust in the word of his father that because he would offer up himself as a guilt offering, he would justify the many and rise again. Let's pray. Lord, we feel a little bit like the disciples this morning. We wonder if we even know you. You are so far above our most high and lofty thoughts. You are so greater than we could ever comprehend. Your love is so more profound and strong than we have ever considered. We are brought to awe in the presence of your majesty in the garden and your love for your own, for your people. Forgive us, O Lord, for not knowing ourselves better and We confess with the disciples freely now our sin, our weakness. We're not like you, Lord. But with them, we also confess in faith that you knew that before you ever called us to yourself. That knowing our sin, you still loved us and still laid your life down for us. We are overwhelmed. We are amazed at your grace that you who knew no sin would take our sins, the sins with my name on them and the names of all your people 
and that you would bear the shame, the indignation, the justice, the wrath due us, willingly, resolutely, without flinching. And we praise you that you trusted your Father and his word and his will and submitted, and we worship you now vindicated, risen, ascended, and coming. Grant, O Lord, that we love you, that we believe in you, and that we worship you in your name. Amen.